Intel is the spark for the dreamers who do. They dream of a life with no diseases, of cleaner, greener, more reliable energy, of advancing education by bringing AI everywhere. Intel is the spark to start something new, to know that no dream is too daring when you have the right foundation. It starts with Intel. Learn more at intel.com starts. I'm Kara Swisher, and you're listening to Sway. At the beginning of the year, crypto seemed like it was off to the races, but not anymore. This week, Bitcoin reached its lowest point in 18 months. Ethereum is worth about a quarter of its November peak, and Coinbase's shares are down 79% this year. So is this a momentary slump in a big industry or an all-out crash? That's what I wanted to ask my guest today. Chris Dixon is a general partner at Andreessen Horowitz, one of Silicon Valley's largest venture capital firms. As a lead crypto investor there, he has directed billions into blockchain and Web3 investments of all kinds. Chris Dixon, welcome to Sway. Thanks for having me. So Chris and I have known each other a long time uh, when you were investing in all kinds of different things. But I think I called you the king of Web3 at one point. Did (laughs) Did I do that? Did I dub you that? Thank you. Can you briefly explain Web3 and how it's different from Web2? A really succinct explanation for people. I know it's you can't boil it down, but try. Well, a very simple way would be to say that it's a new way to build networks where instead of the network being owned by companies, they're owned by a community of users. Um, and so, you know, you could have a social network where through tokens and other kinds of mechanisms, the community receives the economics upside of the network where they kind of control the, the rules of the network. And so kind of combining the, the kind of best features of the open decentralized protocols of Web 1 with the kind of advanced modern functionality of Web 2. In other words, no Google. Uh, hopefully. Um, in Web 1, there's no company benefiting from the growth of the web. I mean, there were individual companies on the web, but there was no company that kind of owned the network, right? Um, whereas in Web 2, you have, you know, you have a set of companies that own the network. And I think we're at a point now where there's kind of four or five companies that control most of the internet. And I think that is a bad thing for a number of reasons. Uh, I think it makes the whole thing kind of less dynamic and interesting. But I think more importantly, like for creative people, if you're, you know, if you do what you do, um, or if you're an artist or you're doing, you're intermediated now by these companies who are very, very good at extracting all the money. All right. And, and which Andreessen Horowitz was a big part of. Let's be that, clear. That's true. Let's that's, true. Look, clear. that's true. And I, I don't speak for myself. Right. I was part of it and I don't like how it ended up. But kind of uneasy lies the head that wears the crown these days. Um, so let's first talk about what's happening right now. Explain the fall off in crypto and how you are assessing it as an investor. Sure. So, I mean, I guess my take right now, I mean, no one really understands the full kind of macro situation. It seems to me this is broader than just crypto. I mean, so if you look at kind of high growth tech stocks, for example, um, those are down a lot. You know, I I don't know what will happen next. But to me, this feels kind of more like 2008, I would say, like this feels like a macro kind of thing with inflation and everything else. Like, again, I'm not an expert on that. But, um, you know, and I think the first thing that gets affected are kind of highly liquid, high growth things like crypto and tech stocks. And so we'll see where it it ends up, you know, but I do think it's, you know, like, I think there's a couple things going on. So like, Crypto has certainly been very volatile over the years, and no question about that. Um, And it's an emerging category. I mean, we think of it very much in the venture category of like an early kind of technology that's being built out as opposed to something that's kind of mature. 
So that's certainly a factor, but I think it's also just kind of this whole macro thing, which we'll see how that plays out. Um, okay, let's talk about this meltdown and Bitcoin and others. The whole sector you've been investing in is being particularly hit, more so than any other sector. Bitcoin is currently, at the time of this taping, worth $22,637 in November of 2021, just recently, $68,000. At peak, crypto was $3 trillion in value. Now it's one trillion. Um, Ethereum, by the way, was uh, worth about 1200 down from a high of 5000 also in November. How do you square that as an investor? Well, we have a venture model, right? So we're not hedge funds. So we don't go and like buy a bunch of sort of things and bet on momentum and things like this. So we we do. And this is, by the way, a very deliberate choice. We very deliberately said we want to be a venture fund. We want to have a long term horizon. We have the same kind of similar LPs to what we have in our main fund, which is they have a they have a 12 year plus horizon. And we tell them, look, and, and actually, like one of the reasons we raised a separate crypto fund, I did this myself, I went out to the LPs and I said, look, this is just a different this is just a different thing. It's going to be riskier. There's going to be bad headlines. I really believe in it. I'm going to devote my career to it. But, you know, you should opt in if you want to. Right. So we have a set of LPs. Just for those who don't know, limit LPs are limited partners. Yeah. These are the people that give you the money bags, essentially, that you take. That's from. right. They, they, they're the ones who give us the money. So we have a set of investors who have opted into this. I mean, look, and like these are big institutions. And I, I don't know the exact numbers, but they probably put 0.1 percent of their kind of endowments and things into these kinds of, you know, they understand that this is sort of the venture of venture, right? This is like the the riskier area of an already risky category. This was a $4.5 billion fund in crypto and blockchain we, investments. That's right. We just closed a new fund, yeah. Right, which is just in time. How, have you been getting yeah. a lot of calls today or this week or, or the recently? From LPs? Yeah. I haven't gotten a single call, to be honest. Really? Yeah. They're not like, oh, 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 no. We have, like we've been doing, I mean, a lot of them we've been working with for 10 plus years. You know, we spent a lot of time kind of trying to educate and just have people understand things. And so, you know, like we will, I'll do some kind of like webinar or something at some point soon, probably to sort of talk to people and things. But no, I think we have a very kind of patient. So they're not freaking out at this very moment because no, people tend, not, that, I've heard not that you've heard. So do you remain bullish at this moment? Is that the time to double down in your, in the way you think about it? Because these are the moments where investors go, oh dear. I'm very, like, I mean, look, I'm, yes, I mean, I'm very bullish. I think like, I mean, the way I look at it, and you know the history of the internet and tech, like, there's basically, I think if there's just sort of two independent processes that happen, there's the financial processes, and it's sort of this, your crazy uncle that's like jumping up and down. I thought last year it was too high. I think this year it's too low. This is my editorializing. I'm not, I'm not giving investment advice, but like, it just seems wildly volatile to me in a way that doesn't fully make sense. Then there's a separate track, which I focus on, which is kind of the product and tech track, right? And that's like, what, you know, what's the pipeline of good products? You know, what's, how's the infrastructure? Is it built out? So you think, I put blockchains into the kind of history of computing where, you know, if you go back to World War II, every 10 to 15 years or so, there's been a, a new computing wave. And for each of those, and I've spent a lot of time thinking about this and kind of reading the history of it, um, each of those waves had kind of what I call kind of an incubation phase. So you think about mobile computing as an example, like you had companies like uh, General Magic, I think it was 90, 93 or four or something, right? Like as early as that. And then you had, you know, I just, I was watching Die Hard the other day and for some, not Die Hard, what was it? Uh, Lethal Weapon, for some reason it was on TV and they had a cell phone in the 80s. It was hilarious. The big was like one. Big I box. had one of those, yeah, yeah. Don't, <laughs> yeah, laugh. So, don't laugh about so, this. You know, so, I mean, it's like, a, you know, it's a, it's not like this immaculate conception where the iPhone appears. You've seen this before, but let's stick to the news for a second. I want to get to the analogies to other things. But, you know, Celsius, a crypto bank, decided to halt withdrawals for nearly 2 million users and Binance, the crypto exchange, briefly halted trading. It feels like we've all seen it's a wonderful life and we know what a run of the bank looks like, right? When that happens, what are people to think? Well, I think we should talk about regulation, maybe, because I look, we're pro-regulation. And like, I think that a lot of these the issues here are the fact that there is not enough regulation around these things. So we're not directly involved in Binance or Celsius or Terra or any of these. But 
you know, my view is that generally we've had almost no guidance from the regulators and that they've been doing what's called regulation through enforcement. So kind of selective regulation actions. Like I was on the board of Coinbase for a long time. One of the frustrations there was that they would spend all this time and money being compliant. And then they would always have some kind of offshore competitor that was flouting the rules. And what would end up happening is that for whatever reason, the regulators spend all their time on Coinbase. So let's just take stable coins as an example, which has been in the headlines with Terra Luna, right? So there's USDC, which I consider the gold standard for stable coins. So USDC is, is co-sponsored by Coinbase Ascent and Circle. This is, explain what it is. This is yeah. dollar. So it's a blockchain kind of token that's worth a dollar. And it's worth a dollar because there's a dollar literally sitting in a bank, right? And it's audited and it's, you know, like, is it perfect, like regulatory wise? I don't know. Like maybe they could upgrade a little it's bit. Considered one of the safer ones. The yeah, coins. but I mean, it's like there's literally a dollar in the bank, and that's very, very different than some of these what are called uncollateralized stable coins, which have been in the headlines, where there's nothing in the bank, right? It's just literally backed up by another token. And of course, what happened is it's a wonderful life, right? There was a bank run, and so you know, I think in a sensible regulatory regime if the regulators would make a distinction between those two things, right? right. And you would say, okay, there's rules. Like if you're going to call yourself a stable coin and you're going to market it and you're going to say it's safe, you know, to, this is the worst part, I think, is the, is the marketing to consumers. Uh, you know, you need to you need to do certain things, right? But th th those rules don't exist. So people don't know crypto lenders don't have to answer to any regulators and investors have no protection as they would in a bank from for the FDIC. Yeah, like I'm not an expert on this, but like I think clarity would be great. And so, for example, there's like a new bill that was proposed. I don't know how far it'll get. Loomis, Gillibrand. I think that like we're generally supportive of that. Like, I do think you need regulation. Like, it's clear, especially recently, like with these blowups, that this is this is not good for the space. This is not our vision of the space. We don't want to see that. And so I think this idea that, like, somehow we're all kind of promoting this Wild West thing is not the case. We've spent years trying to get, you know, going to D.C. and trying to kind of talk to regulators and get what we think is kind of regulation that balances innovation and consumer protection. So let's talk about Gary Gensler, who's the head of the SEC. It's not clear who's going to regulate it, too. We'll get to that in a second. But um, predicted turmoil in May. Jamie Dimon, who owns a big bank, who runs a big bank. Um, no longer says cryptocurrency. He calls them crypto tokens. He's always been sort of yeah. not very into this. And I think there's a reason why. He has reasons of his own for doing that. But at the same time, uh, he looks safer, right? He has this idea of safety and he wants to hold on to power at the same time. So what do you think the government should be doing here? From your perspective, what's the most promising regulations that are most important? I think clarity. Yeah. I mean, I, I look, I don't understand all the dynamics of Washington. I think there's some kind of like, oh, you're not stupid. Come on. <laughs> okay. well, well, like the CFTC and SEC <laughs> are kind of like, I think difficult Washington people, <laughs> no, Chris, but, you're no, one of the mean, smartest I, people I know. Sorry. I, I get kind of the, the formal stuff, but like, there's also like this kind of political dynamic, as you'd expect between like the CFTC and the SEC. Um, like the CF, the way I think of the CFTC, like, like even when you're a commodity, you still need regulations. You need regulations around market manipulation and cornering the market and wash trading and the CFTC, CFTC so, regulates commodities. The SEC regulates late securities. Yeah. And, and so, by the way, in, in any framework, I think you would have regula regulation around tokens. It's just a question of whether you have securities regulation. And, you know, I think that the my, my I guess my tea leaves reading is that the power has sort of shifted to the SEC under the Biden administration. And Gensler sort of, you know, been kind of very active. And I think a lot will depend, probably depend on the midterms. Mm -hmm. So the Biden administration issued an executive order in March ensuring responsible development of digital markets. And your thoughts of the executive order for Biden, because a lot of people in, in your industry welcomed it because it acted like you were a real, you know, a real boy, I guess. I don't know what to say. Like, how important was that? I, I think it was important. Um, I guess the sort of regulatory experts I we have on staff said it was important, but sort of TBD, you know, like, let's see what happens afterwards. Like, it was a pretty general statement. It was very general. Yeah. Again, uh, let me get off of regulation in a minute. But if, if you don't understand regulation fully, who does? Where is the big <laughs> thinking on this? 
given you put I mean, a lot we of have money. A team, we have a great team of people. Mm-hmm. Like it just takes a long, like you can understand sort of the basic tech and everything else, but until you've lived and breathed that world for 10 years, you probably don't really understand all the dynamics. Um, so, you know, we have a great team. We have, a, you know, sort of for each kind of regulatory agency, we have sort of former officials who advise us and things. So I don't know if anyone has a full, I mean, it's very complex. Uh, the U.S. regulatory, you know, it's many different institutions or state level. Mm-hmm. So that adds to the uncertainty from your perspective. It does. It does. It's very complex. So let's talk about the 2008 analogy and efforts to mainstream mm-hmm. cryptocurrency. Sure. So how much of this fall off is a recognition of systemic risk? Because some people are comparing it to the 2008 financial crisis. Do you agree with that? Because this is still a very small area. Housing is a $43.4 trillion in, you know, value industry. Gold, $10 trillion. And of course, those underwent, especially housing, a lot of volatility. I think today, as of today, the total market cap of all crypto assets, including Bitcoin, which is the bulk of that, is a trillion dollars, which is half of the you know value of Apple stock. But I mean, it's tiny in the global economy. It's tiny. Like it's nothing compared to housing, credit, stocks. It's literally less than half of Apple. So it's, I mean, it's, I get it. It's very high profile, you know, it's headlines, there's these sort of spectacular failures, Although, you know, I will say in the spectacular failures, like they, you know, even like this Terra Luna, which was a disaster, right? Explain what that is for people who don't know very briefly. So, yeah, it's just, it was what I was alluding to before is an uncollateralized stablecoin out of Korea, which, you know, kind of, I don't know, marketed itself as being kind of a, I don't know, relatively safe investment and basically went to zero. And um, so not so safe, not safe. And I think that silver lining on that, look, it's it was contained. It was one thing. It wasn't a kind of a systematic risk so far. There's been no kind of contagion. You know, if you think about 2008, right, I don't understand how the global banking system works. But clearly, like when Bear Stearns went down, there was this kind of systematic risk. You had to have government bailouts, things like this. I think of this look, I mean, this is really like it's it's like I said, it's half of Apple stock. It's a relatively small kind of nascent category. Right. But is this from your perspective, a 2008 moment for crypto? Well, when I was saying 2008, I was thinking more, I, I was editorializing beyond crypto, I guess. I was saying just sort of like when I, uh, you know, talk to friends in the finance community broader than crypto, I've just never seen such negativity. I mean, since 2008, like the world's ending. I don't know if you've had that experience. I, I'm surprised at how negative people are. Yeah, well, I'm not because one of the things is you all push yourself out there is the next big thing, right? I mean, that's what it is. Part of the similarity is to the push to go mainstream far too early in the narrative around democratizing yeah. access, just like subprime mortgage market. Well, I, oh, yeah. I mean, I meant that broadly the people negative the on the economy, economy, not just yes, crypto. Yeah. Yes, yeah. yes. But yes. crypto is getting a lot, getting a lot. A peak moment for this was around the Super Bowl crypto ads. Um, was it too early to say how fantastic you all are? Or did, were you worried about that as someone who's a big investor? I wasn't saying how fantastic we all are. But um, look, I, I think, let me say something else, which is I think within the crypto industry, there's really kind of two factions, right? There's the faction we consider ourselves part of, which is what I described before, the kind of Web3 builder faction. And then there's this other aspect, which is I would call the casino. Um, I generally dislike the kind of casino aspect of the crypto world, and I don't support it. We've, you'll never see, I, I think if you go back 10 years, you'll never see us supporting that or promoting that. And I think it's a negative influence. I don't like these commercials that promote this stuff. I don't think it talks about innovation. I think it's sending all the wrong messages. It's the FOMO, everything else. I don't think that stuff's good. And, you know, I don't know if it needs to be regulated or something else, but I don't think it's helpful. Um, I don't, I now I feel very strongly that I don't think that that should, we should throw the baby out with the bathwater. Like, I think that the kind of core tech is very important. 
And I absolutely think we need in the near term, like some regulation, sensible regulation. I, I want to see it balanced so that we can still build the things I'm describing. We can build social networks and marketplaces and all sorts of new things. And I, I look, I think this is the most important thing to counterbalance the power of the big tech companies. I, I don't, there's no, there's no credible other contender for something disruptive. There's no other disruptive tech in the world right now, in my view, that's actually going to have a chance to take down these companies than Web3. Which is, though, something that Jack Dorsey, who I would call a crypto evangelist, yeah. Is also against the people who are doing the investing, like yourselves. He's pushing back on the centralization. It's kind we, of we get hit from all sides. You get hit from all sides. He he's been pushing back on the centralization. You know, I always love when the man says, "Fight the man." That's my favorite yeah. part of the entire equation. Well, Twitter was, you know, they were the most uh, guilty of all. I mean, I, if you remember the kind of, I, I think of it as the worst case of the most the bait and switch against developers where you remember there was this huge yes. ecosystem yes, and there, there was, was. A, there were venture firms investing in Twitter apps. I was at that conference. I know. Yeah. And then they just shut it all off. They killed it. And to me, that was a really, I mean, my friend Fred Wilson, he was on the board. I remember, I think he was on the board then. And we talk about it a lot. Like that was his kind of crypto moment was like, wow, this should have been a protocol. Like Twitter should be a protocol. It should not be owned by a company. Which is what Dorsey was pushing for, right? Under Blue Sky. Yeah. And so anyway, so I'm gl- I think that we share his view, his values there. I don't like, I think the implementation he's pushing, I, I don't believe in it. But Right. One of the things I had a really interesting discussion this week at Andrew Ross Sorkin's um, conference, I led a panel on crypto, is the idea of inequity in it. Does it increase inequity if you're pushing this on people? And by the way, it's a much more, di- there's much more diversity in the investing here. One in five adults, this is interesting, Suddenly, especially millennials owned uh, own it thirty six percent versus six percent of boomers. More Gen X than Gen Z. More men than women. It is more diverse. Uh, many people of color think this is an opportunity to get in on things, right? On early on early in the situation, and others think, no, no, it's another opportunity to take uh, from this group. How do you look at that? Does it really give power to everybody? Because that's not what it looks like from ownership and things like that. I mean, look, I think, can it get worse in Web 2? Web 2, I think, was the most concentrated, both economic and control kind of power centralization that we've seen in economically in decades. So, you know, I mean, look, as you mentioned, we were one of the beneficiaries. We're a venture firm that invested in a bunch of those things. Basically, the beneficiaries were the founders, the investors, and maybe some of the employees, right? And that's it. And I think there's a lot of, my view is a lot of reason people are kind of upset today on the internet. I mean, there's a bunch of reasons, obviously, and, you know, it's complex, but I think one reason is they feel left out. Um, they feel like, you know, a lot of people feel like I helped build Airbnb. I was one of, I was one of the early Uber drivers and like, how come I'm left out of this? Right. And so I think it's a very powerful idea. You know, the next Uber, well, maybe it's not Uber, maybe it's a AI marketplace or some futuristic thing, but like the next kind of great networks, like could actually, the people that build it could actually own it. That's one of the core values of web three is the tokens, the ownership goes to the communities. I think it's a very powerful idea that people can own some of it. And so I would rather see people earn it and not have to pay for it. That That's our view. And that's actually what we recommend to companies. Don't sell tokens to the public. Airdrop tokens to the public. Give them tokens for helping you build the network, for doing work. I would love to see that be the mechanism by which we have more de- democratic kind of wealth and not selling. There wasn't we, that the hope for the first internet. I, you know, the government owned it. Was, it. it was, the taxpayer it was. paid for it. And somehow it was. the owner of your firm is one of the richest people on earth, right? Like that, that kind of thing, or Mark Zuckerberg or Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk. Uh, it was, it was. And I think a really interesting question is that, you know, like if you read like Tim Wu, who I think is a really good writer. Mm-hmm. Who works for President Biden. Yeah, his view would be, I think his view of the master switch would be this is sort of some inevitable thing that happens with all media consolidation. Like, you know, I understand this is a contrarian view, but like my view is I don't think it's inevitable. I think it's and I think the Internet's different. I think the Internet's different than sort of hardware based media. Plot. Like with radio and things, it just made sense or broadcast TV. You only had room for five channels or something. The Internet 
is a software based. It's designed to be a very plastic software based medium where you can. I think we still have a chance to redesign it, and to you know, it's thirty years into it, right? I mean, and I it's I don't think it's hyperbole to say the internet's the most important invention of the century, of multiple centuries. It's a very big deal, and it's very early on. And I agree with you. Web one didn't go the way it should have. It kind of surprised me, frankly. I think until I didn't fully understand what was happening until like 2015 or something when I was like, holy shit, this is becoming like broadcast TV. I was naive. But I, you know, I guess the, to me, a question I think about a lot is, is it sort of inevitable? And maybe it is. And the cynics will say this is just another kind of VC firm trying to find some new trend or something. I don't think it's inevitable that the Internet has to be kind of owned by four companies. So who is building this so far? How do you think about when you're investing? Because it's certainly Adam Newman just popped up and I think you gave him the money, yep. right, from WeWork. Talk about that, for example. Sure. Like, it seems like the same people to me. Yeah, well, so that I, I understand the headlines are juicy, but so that's flow carbon. Right. Adam, like a lot of entrepreneurs, I think is, you know, former entrepreneurs is investing in things. And so he he invested and helped incubate. He's not operationally involved. I know it's a good headline, but he's not operationally involved. He's sort of just, you But know. how do you push against that idea? It's not the same people. Like, you know, Mark is on the board of Meta, right? Which yeah. is the, owned, owned the last one. How do you, and look, you make your own investments. I understand how venture capital firms work, but how do you prevent that? How does it become good for people who weren't able to get in on the thing, which creates a casino-like environment, which is problematic. I mean, for one thing, I think just like this is this goes to the Jack Dorsey critiques of like what A16Z owns Web3, like just empirically. So take Ethereum as an example, which has been one of the things Jack has critiqued. We I don't know what we own, but it's far less than 1% of Ethereum. I, I don't know. I haven't added it up. Like with this idea, like in the old days of venture capital, like firms would own 20%, 25%. I would say probably the we haven't added it up, but like the average maybe now, even on early stage investments is 3%. Something like this, like it's just dramatic. And this is, by the way, not just crypto. I think it's just sort of the steady march of kind of the kind of commoditization of venture capital and just there's a bunch of reasons why like ownership levels have gone down and things. Well, the idea that a cap table has more people on it than the same 12 people. Yeah, yeah, I think there's a bunch of reasons why. But so so I think just like empirically, like we just don't something like Ethereum, like it's very widely owned and like tens of thousands of people involved and no one really controls it. And I think it's, to me, it's really notably different than, you know, than Web2 kind of companies. We'll be back in a minute. If you like this interview and want to hear others, follow us on your favorite podcast app. You'll be able to catch up on Sway episodes you may have missed, like my conversation with John Doerr, and you'll get new ones delivered directly to you. More with Chris Dixon after the break. Over the last 25 years, the world has witnessed incredible progress, from dial-up modems to 5G connectivity, from massive PC towers to AI-enabled microchips. Innovators are rethinking possibilities every day. Through it all, Invesco's QQQ ETF has provided investors access to the world of innovation. Be a part of the next 25 years of new ideas by supporting the fund that gives you access to innovative companies. Invesco QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. There are risks when investing in ETFs, including possible loss of money. ETFs' risks are similar to those of stocks. Investments in the tech sector are subject to greater risk and more volatility than more diversified investments. Before investing, carefully read and consider fund investment objectives, risks, charges, expenses, and more in prospectus at Invesco.com. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Hey there, it's Ira Glass from This American Life. If you don't know our show, it's true stories that unfold like little movies for radio. Lots of them funny with surprising moments and plot twists. We've been on the radio for years. And we've teamed up with The New York Times to bring you new episodes of This American Life a full day and a half before you can find them anywhere else online. And the place you can do that is the New York Times audio app every Saturday morning. 
In the app, you also find the best of our archive, hundreds of episodes, plus This American Life shorts, which are handpicked stories when you're in the mood to hear something good, but you don't have time for a whole episode. And the New York Times audio app, can I say, is chock full of tons of other stories and podcasts curated every day for those moments that you want to listen to something and you don't know what you want to listen to. You can download it at nytimes.com slash audio app and subscribe to start listening. And if you're not already a New York Times subscriber, well, this is another reason to become one. Again, that's nytimes.com slash audio app. So let's talk about this idea of grift and scam. And so I asked actually people, but one of the questions that we got a lot of is how much of crypto is scam at scale? How troubling is that when you say there's all these things that aren't backed by anything, that they're sort of come and go when you see them shut down? Um, like how much of a problem is that? Yeah, I mean, I, look, I, as I mentioned, like I think that regulation would be good. And I think there is a bunch of this stuff. I mean, like a lot of it I think happens is like anonymous groups offshore, I'll just say, like, we have we have probably 80 crypto investments now, and these are real entrepreneurs that would pass kind of any test of any venture firm of, like, really, you know, brilliant technologists dedicated to what they're doing. So my daily impression is not at all that. Now I, see, I read Twitter and I see this other stuff that goes on. So, for example, let's take there's a company we're investors in called Uniswap, mm-hmm. which is... um kind of pioneered this thing called decentralized exchanges. I won't go into all the details, but what immediately happens is they get copied because yes. everything's open source. So they get copied by SushiSwap and all the copies go off and do all sorts of crazy stuff, right? And meanwhile, Uniswap, they're in, I'm in New York. They're in New York. They're down the street in New York. They're all in an office. They're the most earnest, like nerdy, you know, great entrepreneurs you'll ever meet. They have a team of lawyers and then they have all these like kind of scammy clones. And mm-hmm. so I do think there needs to be, and it's, and frankly, it's frustrating because like they, that's their competition Mm -hmm. that they have to deal with. And you guys are seeing it actually in some of problems, at least related, like you're saying clones in plagiarism in one of your recent investments, OpenSea. This is like an eBay for NFTs. This is non-fungible tokens, one of the kind of digital assets. There's a ton of scam and grift and security flaws um, verified by blockchain, but not actually secure. How do you deal with that when it's open season like this? What is the mechanism for doing that? Well, so OpenSea is an example. So we, I think we first invested about a year and a half ago, and I believe they were 10 people. Um, they now have a couple hundred people and, and they've hired, if you go look at their executive team, they've hired from Facebook, you know, senior people from Facebook, Lyft, a whole bunch of other kind of places. They're kind of, they went from low numbers in 2020 to, I don't know what it was, tens of billions in GMV last year. They just grew incredibly quickly. I know there's been a bunch of articles. There's a New York Times article last week about them. I was frustrated by that article. That was frustrating. I think it's, I mean, I, I don't want to get into the whole media thing, but like. Please do. I, I but I'm, but I'm I, do think, I, don't, I don't think it's, look, I mean, I think a lot of it is a standard. You've you've chronicled startups like mm-hmm. eBay early on, et cetera. Like, they certainly did. You know, look, if you, if you get to know Devin and OpenSea, the CEO, like they are very, very earnest kind of classic, you know, well-meaning entrepreneurs who are building things as fast as they can. But it's not perfect. Like, it's growing very quickly. And look, I'm biased, but I feel like some of the coverage is just only kind of focused on the negative stuff. But is it a good thing? I'm not trying to be negative here, but is it a good thing to democratize crypto when it's still so insecure? One of the things that I always had a problem with with all these, there's, they would just put it out there. I remember when Facebook put out, um, I'm just using them as an example, Facebook Live. And I kept saying, what about people shooting each other on this? What about a mass yeah. murder? And they were, they were sort of like, Carrie, you're a bummer. We'll fix it later. And I'm like, well, how about now? How about we fix it now and then we don't have that later kind of thing? Is it a good idea to democratize and push the idea of democratization when it remains unsecure? Can you not anticipate what's going to happen until it happens? 
I think there's always a trade-off on these things. I don't think that the Facebook move fast and break things is the right answer and just like throw stuff out there and not be thoughtful and responsible about it. But I also think that there's an important value of like being inclusive and democratizing these things. So so is like, it's like cities owning, you know, uh, Bitcoin that hasn't worked out so well for Miami or Eric Adams. Yeah. Is that too early when everyone's tries to jump on a bandwagon? Is there anything you do to say, let's just slow down or not? Yes. I mean, we, we always will talk about it as a venture at class. And I think there's a lot of kind of, and there's, there's, the casino stuff I alluded to earlier kind of promotes these things as more mature the way that like a stock is more mature. And my view is that most retail investors should get tokens for free by doing kind of work and helping to build the network and not buying them. Right. So they don't risk themselves initially. Yes, that's right. And that's the advice we give people. And that's kind of the playbook that we run. That it's a speculative asset. That it's a, which is something I say. Yeah, it is a speculative asset. Yeah, I mean, but as our tech stocks is a bunch of stuff. But yes, I, less I think it speculative, is. I suppose, on some level, because you can they have records. Of- my my own take is, mm-hmm. I mean, for what it, this is me editorializing. I think every I learned this in two thousand eight when shit goes wrong, mm-hmm. everything gets correlated and everything's speculative except for cash and treasury bills. So I yeah. don't know, like that's my own. But. Yeah. So you have a mattress full of money, Chris. So <laughs> um, so a couple more things. Let's talk about the technology because there are mm-hmm. a lot of critics around the technology and how it works out. So you know, you have issues of regulation, of security, all kinds of things. Talk about the blockchain technology itself. There's a lot of people saying this is not the next internet. This is impossible to scale. Can you sort of talk a little bit about the technology? Yeah, I mean, like I think that, so what is a blockchain? So a blockchain is, I think of it as a new kind of computer, something like Ethereum, you can write code for it and it stores information just like it's a virtual computer. It's a network, but it's a computer. And it's a computer where the code you run will continue to operate as designed. I call it computers that can make commitments. So you can say, for example, you can write code that says, like, take Bitcoin, there'll only ever be 21 million Bitcoins. And that assurance is given to you by the computer, not by the person behind the computer, right? Like, so you think of a traditional computer, if Facebook said, I'm going to have Facebook coin, there's going to be 21 million coins, and they're running it on some server, the management team could just change their mind. So what the interesting property of a blockchain is you can write code that's sort of autonomous code. And that lets you do these things like DAOs and, and you know, tokens and other kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Explain what a DAO is for people who don't know. Sure. So a DAO is a decentralized autonomous organization. So it's basically kind of a blockchain-based kind of internet native organization that could just, you know, whatever an organization could do. They could create software, they could, you know, play esports, they could do whatever it might be, but they're kind of a bunch of people that kind of get together. Someone called it a Discord with a balance sheet. That's correct. Sort of a community get together and they kind yeah. of, but now they have resources. I was going to create one to buy Twitter out from under yeah. Elon. I think what's cool about that, like you think about, like to me, Wikipedia is one of the great wonders of the world. Like the fact that the fact that a bunch of random people on the internet who aren't even logged in, they're like anonymous, can come together and create what I think is a pretty good information resource. And by the way, it was very controversial from like 2001 to seven. If you remember, it was getting banned in schools and things. I, I think it's a kind of a miracle that we have this kind of crowdsource encyclopedia. Now, you know, I think it's always a shame every year when Wikipedia is begging for money, right? And they're like, and and thank God, uh, Wikipedia is a product that doesn't really need any product development, right? If they were trying to build a search engine like that, they would have run out of money and lost. Um, and so one of the exciting things with DAOs is you now have kind of the kind of great kind of internet native behavior of crowdsourced behavior, a bunch of people coming together, but now they can have resources and it's an investment opportunity. That's the way I look at it. Right. So w- speaking of that, you were on the board of something like Coinbase, which is sort of a middleman if you have to figure it out. And there was tons of those in the beginning of the internet. Um, what do you think about that idea of who, what is the most promising of the Web3 investments when people are thinking of them and which are you most wary of? Well, my own, uh, I guess, bias is to really lean into the futuristic things. So the vast majority of things we're involved with are like pure kind of protocols and blockchain applications. 
And so like one of the reasons we're not involved with things like Celsius and BlockFi is to me, those are kind of more too kind of Web 2-ish. So we try to be kind of maybe air on the side of futuristic, I guess. I think um, I'm, I'm very excited about I've been spending time in LA. I'm very excited about the intersection of Web3 and media. I think, you know, one of the interesting things in the media world right now is they, like me, are very unhappy with the Web2 incumbents. Um, they see them as those companies of having inserted themselves in the middle of between them and their kind of their audience. So you kind of think about like what Substack did. Now, Substack's not crypto, but I think of Substack as kind of Web 2.5, right? So, so what Substack said is, hey, let's get rid of the intermediaries. They use email, by the way, that one of the Web 1 the classic decentralized protocols, one of the few places where you can still reach your audience and not have an intermediary. And the result is you have, you know, journalists making a lot more money than I think some. people thought they could. Yeah. So some are. Yeah. But I, look, I think it's I think if you told people five years ago, you'd have people making a million dollars with email newsletters, they wouldn't have believed it. Right. And I, I believe we can do the same thing um, for for many other categories of media. And I think we can do that in partnership with a lot of people in like L.A. and the media world who are excited about these ideas and really get it and get the value proposition and really want. But they're just very unhappy with the Web2 incumbents. Should you do it with the media companies who are centralized or or, or the creators themselves? Yeah, sorry, the creators. Right. So like we just announced one with this, guy, this great guy, Rob McElhaney, who's a actor, uh, writer who created Always Sunny in Philadelphia, Mythic Quest. And he's creating this thing I'm really excited about, which is we, we call it kind of decentralized story creation. So imagine you had kind of the you look at these communities like the Star Wars communities or the Marvel communities online and how excited they are. And they write fan fiction and they talk about it all day. Now, imagine if you could have a, the next Harry Potter, the next Marvel that was actually created by an Internet community and owned by that Internet community. And they could go and tell stories and everything else. But they would actually control it through a DAO. And that's like, for example, what Rob is doing. And you're yeah. right. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's not the company we're partnering with. Partnering it's with Rob. interesting because this was, it's not yeah. a new idea. United Artists, that was the idea behind United Artists. When yeah, it was it's founded. not a new idea. It's just it, like nothing's new. I mean, right. my view is nothing's new under the mm -hmm. sun. Like every tech idea is an old idea. It's just mm -hmm. finally like you right, have the right tools to do it. This is kind of my view. So no, I agree. It's not. Any great idea is not new, right? So media is a big... I, I had a long discussion once with George Lucas about this. I'm like, why do you give them anything? Like, it's all yours. I think, look, I think the soft underbelly of the Web2 companies is the creator side. Mm -hmm. It's amazing that they got away with taking 100% of the revenue for the YouTube shares, whatever they share, 45%. But the fact that like Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, right... They make their money through advertising and they share zero of it. It's a remarkable thing. And these creators are supposed to just be happy with likes and things. I think that's their weakness. And that's what we're kind of going after right. is we're going to say we're going to create better tools and networks for those creative people. And if they move over, we think that the audience will move over, too. Right. And I just think I think that I think that's a really, really important kind of topic that that I think only Web3 is really addressing. Yeah. As an example, it certainly appeals to their greed and yeah. narcissism. But in any case, um, when you think about uh, and mine, too, by the way, um, <laughs> when you um, when you think about the critics that you have on the anti crypto, what is their yeah. best argument? What is the one that you go? Mm, they have a point. Yeah, I mean, so one thing I'd say is also inside of crypto, we have a lot of critics and I think and we have a lot of debates. It's not as if this is all just like happy and, you know. And and so and, and look, I think some of the things you brought up, scalability, regulation, these are all like legitimate topics. You know, I, look, I, I think a lot about uh, talent. Um, I think that, you know, VCs don't build these products, right? Entrepreneurs do. And we need to kind of get more talented people. I think that's really ticked upward in the last year, but there's a long way to go. I think just kind of continuing that. What about their argument that it can't be scaled? This is not the internet. This is... That's just not true. And I mean, we have a whole team of computer scientists and we've done a lot of work on it. And I just, I don't know, like some of the critics... But I, I just found frustrating because I don't think they've done much research, frankly. Um, some of these like former entrepreneurs who are running around 
um, saying stuff. It's just, they just haven't done the work. They did build the internet, so they do have a little bit of credibility. <laughs> a slight amount. Some of them are some, quite... Some of, some of them did. Some yeah, of them did. some of them did. Yeah, that's right. Who, who built, who really built the internet, Chris? It was a community. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> didn't turn out that way. But so when you think about the excited, you sound most excited about the media part, the idea of, I don't know, LeBron James owning things or whoever it happens to, whatever creator it happens to be. I think, look, I think it's writers, podcasters. I think it's, I think this should be a golden era for creative people. You could, you can write something and reach 8 billion people. You know, this is the Kevin Kelly, one of my favorite essays is this essay. If you remember this thousand true fans, I do. This is one of the core promises of the, of the internet to me was the idea that you could have a thousand true fans, right? You could, you could go and create some niche topic. And, and as he said, like, these would be the people that drive to see you and buy your book. And this is what kind of, you know, I was early involved as an angel investor in Kickstarter. And like, that was kind of the dream there. I don't think it was fully realized. I do believe that's that this should be a golden period for creative people. I think it should be a golden period for developers. I think software developers could have a much better kind of situation where like, think about the Twitter example, where they could be building tools and all sorts of other things around. I think it'd be better for the social networks, like the spam problem on Twitter. Why does Twitter have spam? Because there's one company trying to solve it. Email solved it through a community, right? They solved it through market forces, right? You had, you had a whole kind of industry of anti-spam. I think there's a whole bunch of reasons why, you know, this is just a better way to do things. So when you look at sort of the economic devastation that's happening in the sector you're most invested in that you've really, but what does it take for an investor not to give up or somehow, like, how do you best answer people are like, you sold us a bill of goods or this is not the way you said it was going to go. How do you feel, I guess, about that? I've been through, I don't know, five downturns or something. I think 2008, I co-founded a seed venture fund. I think the whole world almost had decided that the tech world was not a good place to invest. And I, I just fundamentally believe that like smart people with good technology ideas are, are a good investment, regardless of the market. That's what we do. That's what we promote. And, and I, I can't predict the future, but I think this could be one of those times where a bunch of really great people build important stuff. Mm-hmm. All right. Last question. I'm just, I, I, I'm going to close with this issue around Google and sentient AI. I think it's nonsense, <laughs> but I'm curious what it's just, they just have a lot of words that they're searching and know what to fill in. But if yeah. one, that's my dumb way of explaining it. How do you look at that? Because you've been an investor in AI also. How do you look at that? How do I look at that particular case study? I mean, I don't. I, and and no. where AI is going. Yeah. I mean, so I don't know that case. I mean, like there's always like, you know, this goes back 50 years to like early kind of parlor tricks with AI. Eliza is a famous example. Mm-hmm. Eliza is. Where, you know, so like there's been people, you know, who knows the psychological state of the person who was convinced of that. And I don't want to speculate. Look, I'm not involved directly in AI anymore. I actually, as you may remember, I had an AI company before AI. It was it was like a actually worked. So it was 2008. And I thought if you'd asked me then, I you know, i if you asked me in 2011, we sold the company to eBay, I would have said AI is just never going to work. And then two years later, it worked fantastically well. I, I think that, like, I haven't played with, like, the Dolly thing directly. And I think some of these things you have to use yourself because people will cherry pick examples and it's hard to know, like, is it just an elaborate parlor trick or is it really kind of getting smart? But, I, like, I do think that the results are kind of stunningly impressive in that area. Um it's just, yeah, I mean, the rate of improvement. But they don't have feelings yet, do they? <laughs> Someone's the famous... Uh, do, do machines think and someone famously said do submarines swim right this is a it's like do, do they swim i don't know it's, it feels like semantics like they certainly they certainly move fast in water you yeah. know i don't know if they actually if you say it's swimming good line so i mean like we're certainly he- we're, we're certainly headed for very advanced machines um I, I think an important question is who owns that technology i think it's right now going to be owned by probably a couple companies yeah. um and, uh, but I, I, like I do, I will say just, I'm not, I'm an observer in this industry now, but I think the results are kind of stunning. And if you just sort of track the kind of quote unquote Moore's law of this space, 
they're going to keep adding more computers, bigger neural networks. And I think they're on a trajectory of something like 10 to 20 years of having the same number of neurons as a human brain. Yeah. So I think we can kind of track out. And then you add in things like quantum computing and you know, all these other kinds of X factors. And it does feel like, you know, there's broadly in the tech world right now, there's sort of you could be negative and say everything's kind of, you know, fixed and incremental. On the flip side, you could argue in between like virtual reality, you know, Apple's going to have something. Facebook stuff's getting more impressive. AI, Web3, stuff going on in bio engineering, like this could be this kind of crazy time of like really advanced kind of new technologies. And they're all going to kind of reinforce the same way that cloud mobile and social reinforce, right? You couldn't have had social networks wouldn't have gotten so popular without mobile and they couldn't have run without cloud. Like you could have these three things reinforcing in a really powerful way. And, you know, I think we should probably grapple with that as a society because it's both good and bad. And do androids dream of electric sheep. <laughs> electric sheep. Yeah, it's a great book. Know. Anyway, Chris, thank you so much. I yeah, really appreciate no. this. Oh, for sure. Okay. Thank you for having me. Um, I always like talking to you. I now have a list of people I don't want to talk to anymore, and you're not on it. <laughs> okay, well, that's good. Appreciate that. Sway is a production of New York Times Opinion. It's produced by Naeem Araza, Blake Nishik, Caitlin O'Keefe, and Wyatt Orm. With original music by Isaac Jones, mixing by Sonia Herrero and Carol Sabaro, and fact-checking by Michelle Harris and Mary Marge Locker. Special thanks to Shannon Busta, Kristen Lynn, and Christina Samuluski. The senior editor of Sway is Naeem Araza, and the executive producer of New York Times Opinion Audio is Irene Noguchi. If you're in a podcast app already, you know how to get your podcasts, so follow this one. If you're listening on the Times website and want to get each new episode of Sway delivered to you by the media who causes all the problems, download any podcast app, then search for Sway and follow the show. We release every Monday and Thursday. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.